Welcome to episode 27 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Sati and Saint-Saëns. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock. And you're listening to episode 27 of That Classical Podcast. Yeah, you are. Welcome, everybody, from around the globe. Um, <laughs> today, we're going to talk about Eric Satie and Camille Saint-Saëns, who has a silly-looking name. It looks like Camille Saint-Saëns. Saint-Saëns. But don't... I always thought it was Saint-Saëns. Is it... No, Truth time, confession time. <laughs> I had to look it up on YouTube because right. I also thought it was Sanson. Okay, but it's Sanson. Sanson. Let's go for it immediately. Okay. If you're a long time listener, or if you've just listened to maybe one episode, or maybe just half, you'll know that it's now time for. <laughs> That is correct. It is now time for us to condense an entire composer's life down into 60 of Her Majesty's British seconds. Are you sure you're up to the task? Nope, and I never am. <laughs> but let's just smash it. Let's smash it. We never learn, Hope do we? Hope for the best. We never learn. Fingies crossed. All right, Kelly, Camille Saint-Saëns in 60 seconds. Oh Three, <laughs> two, one... Go. Camille Saint-Saëns was born on October 9th, 1835 in Paris. He was an only child. He was a natural musician and was playing piano by the age of three. Started piano lessons at age seven. People were super impressed and competitive with Mozart. P- made his public debut at age ten. Started a Paris conservatoire at age thirteen. Was encouraged to learn the organ because it would lead to more opportunities. Became a bloody great organist man. 1851 started studying composition too. Left conservatoire at 1853. Got job as an organist. Made good money. Then became organist of La Madeleine, a super famous church, and composed a list declared him the greatest organist in the world. 1861 started teaching. One of his students was Gabriel Fauré. Uh, left teaching in 1865. Uh, started premiering way more stuff and became noted figure in mus- musical life in Paris and other French cities. Then war broke Halfway out. Through. He had to serve in the National Guard. Got stuff got intense. Had to escape to temporary exile in England. Returned to Paris, 1871. Joined Pro French Société Nationale de Musique. After this premiered, uh, after this premiered more stuff. Wrote more operas. Lived as a shameless bachelor with his mum until he was 40. Then randomly got married to a 19-year-old. They suffered some tragedies and separated three years later. Started hanging out with Foray and his family instead. 1880s tried to write more operas, but everyone thought he was rubbish. 1890s went on holiday a lot Ten and seconds. didn't compose much. And 1900 came back to Paris and remained there for the rest of his life. Didn't like the new emerging musicians like Debussy, Schoenberg, and Stravinsky. They didn't like him Four, either. Played three. a few more concerts and, and died of a heart attack on 16th of December. 1921. Ooh, bang on a minute. Oh, nailed it, nailed it, nailed as a, it. As a shameless bachelor with his mum. He lived with his mum till he was 40. With, well, in, if, in an apartment, and apparently they just hated each other. And he just never moved out? Never moved out. And then he married a 19-year-old who his mum obviously hated, but then they all lived together. But, <laughs> Why didn't he move out? No, 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 well, they, I think they moved out, but then his mum was like, well, of course I'm coming with you. So um, that was, yeah, not good. Not good for him. Okay, fantastic. Well, okay, so that was a lot of information. It was, it was. Pick something out. What do you want to tell me about? Uh, did you hear me mention that he was part of the Société Nationale de Musique? Uh, yeah. Yeah, what? Well, Which was this like pro-French thing, and I think it was the same thing. Do you remember you mentioned? Oh, with Ravel. So yeah. in our last episode, we talked about Ravel. Who? So I think this might have even your Société Nationale. <laughs> it's hard to say. Might have been a bit before this, uh, but generally right. Saint-Saëns wasn't he super pro-French composer? Yeah, French yeah, he didn't time. like Germans either. And then during the war, Ravel was like, "Well, let's not punish artists right. for right. war." But, but Camille was, was like, like no. let's punish them. Let's punish them all. Cool. So um, a really sympathetic chap then. What a nice guy. In fact, actually, someone, uh, one of his biographers did say about him, he was a troubled man who preferred not to betray the darker side of his soul. But clearly he that's had a, one. That he sounds really Star Warsy. Do you know, <laughs> the darker side of his soul. Um, what I will say is, he sounds like, from, from what I've read, a really different musician to the kind we've talked about before on that classical podcast even though he was really talented from a young age and he Mm. was this like pianist like musical prodigy and a a great organist Mm. it seems that from a lot of different sources people seem to think he didn't have much 
soul in his music. Ooh, except for the dark side so, of his but, soul. But listen to this. So this is a quote from himself. Art is intended to create beauty and character. Feeling only comes afterwards, and art can very well do without it. In fact, it is very much better off when it does. What? Yeah, so, like, I think what he's trying to say there is, like, you don't need to put emotion into into art to make it good. In fact, it's probably better and better thought out without the emotion there. Okay, so it's sort of the old art for art's sake thing. So he sounds like a bit of a purist in exactly. every sense of the word. And like, um, for me, it really reminded me of an article I read about a robot that's been taught how to write music perfectly <laughs> and can give you like a great piece of music with like a nice melody. But obviously it's a robot, there's so no there's soul. no like, there's no soul in it. Right. And I think that's his approach to music. It was like a logical, this is how this should sound because it sounds nice okay and Berlioz you know Hector Berlioz who we talked about in our Christmas episode said he knows everything but lacks inexperience Ooh, Which is a sick great burn. Yeah, sick burn, sick burn. Um, yeah, no, because I think that perfectly sums it up as well. It's like he knows too much and maybe he's not quite naive enough. Okay, what, what yeah. What do you think? I, yeah, it seems to me so he's very sort of focused on music being good for the music's own sake. Yeah. And maybe is it fair to say that he maybe has a bit of a narrow conception of that? Well, or? yeah, exactly. But do you know what? Having said all this, the two pieces I've chosen today... I think, have a lot of emotion behind them and a lot of thought that's gone into them and and actually a lot of humour. So I think, listeners, today, have a listen to these pieces and see if you agree with what everyone said about (laughs) Saint-Saëns. See if you agree he was like a soulless robot. Um, Because I'm not sure these two pieces necessarily portray that. All right, okay. Well, let's crack right on with it Let's smash it. What's the first piece you're going to play for us? So the first piece we're going to talk about today, I'm very excited about, it's called Danse Macabre. Okay, it literally means the dance of death. <laughs> Are you positive that he wasn't what? on the dark side I'm of the force? Jolly, jolly man. Well, no, he may have been an evil genius. He may Sith have been Lord. a Sith Lord. Yeah, yeah. quite possible. But he wrote this in 1874, and it's a tone poem for orchestra. Yes, my favourite. A tone poem, also known as a symphonic poem. Remember, it just means that it's a piece of music that tells a story, right? Got it's it. got a nice narrative behind it, got a it. juicy, crunchy narrative. Right, I've got to tell you some background story about this, lads, because... So, Danse Macabre wasn't something that Camille made up himself, okay? Mm. It's this... Um, it comes from the Middle Ages, and it's what's known as Memento Mori, which basically meant, back in the day, you know, it's like the 1600s or something, right? Yeah. Your neighbour's got the plague. Mm. You've died in childbirth ah. age 12. You know, it's it's <laughs> oh life is bleak as balls, okay? And everyone, all the kind of clergy and stuff, wanted to remind people that death was near at all times. Why? So basically, because they basically wanted you to live your best life <laughs> in like the most millennial way, but like live your dream, <laughs> live your best life. Um, and mementos mori were kind of uh, reminders, like pieces of art or, you know, frescoes, things that were around you that reminded you that you were going to die pretty sharpish. Okay. Heavy. So, so the Danse Macabre is basically a reminder that in death we're all equal. So even if you're a king or a kid or a right. shepherd or, you know, whatever, when you die, you're all the same. Because what happens is <laughs> oh once a year on Halloween, death trots along at midnight. Yeah, and he calls everyone up from their graves, all the skellies from their graves. <laughs> and he's like, lads and lassies, let's have a jig. Let's have a dance. Oh, I'll play the is. violin. Right, yeah. He's like, I'll mm. play the violin. Let's all have a dance. And everyone gets out of their grave and has a boogie together. Yeah? Okay, lovely. And then... Um, like the monster mash. Exactly. 
<laughs> like the mod- it's a graveyard smash. <laughs> and then so Death plays the fiddle, and then um, the rooster crows at dawn, and Death's like, "Off you pop, lads, back to your graves." Okay. And they're like, "Oh," and then they do that, and then they do it again next year. Okay, so it's like wow. Chris- Christmas for skeletons, basically. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. So, and it yeah, basically we're all the same in death, and so this is what. Camille based this song on, this idea yeah. of, of the Danse Macabre. And it's really awesome because so many things in the piece tell this story. For example, the piece opens up with a harp playing a single note 12 times, like the 12 strokes of midnight. Ooh, nice. Symbolic. And then when the first violin comes in, like not with a melody or anything, but just sort of comes in, it's playing this chord known as tritone... The tritone chord, the tritone, do you know this? Yeah, yeah, I do. Tell me about it. Uh, so the tritone is basically a specific musical interval that used to be called Diabolus in Musica, a.k.a. the devil the devil's in interval. music. Yeah, exactly, the devil's interval. Have we talked about it before on the podcast? We haven't. So it's a diminished fifth, which is basically like the, the clashiest yeah. combination it's, of two notes. It sounds quite evil. Um, it's like in, in Psycho, I think it is. Is in Psycho? Is though? it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a devil's interval <laughs> Great there. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, So and, and so on top of that as well, instead of the violinist's E string being tuned to an E, it's tuned down to an E flat to give it even more kind of Ooh. evilness. Yeah, great. <laughs> Good technical Good term. So anyway, you'll hear uh, the theme, which we're about to play now, is this sort of catchy, descending and then questioning melody that gets repeated throughout here and there. And then there's just such great little bits and bobs. Like, for example, Saint-Saëns uses the xylophone to imitate the sound of rattling bones. It's it's like funny bones. (laughs) When you first mentioned the dancing skeletons. There better be. I was going to like be funny, be like, oh, does that mean they're going to do like a xylophone? There actually are. So there are, but they're kind of subtle, but they are definitely there. But they're definitely there, right? Um, And then obviously we're not going to be able to hear the whole thing, but near the end, there's this really abrupt break in the texture and it's an oboe doing a cockerel's crow and then very suddenly things get really chill because it signals the dawn and death is like off you pop everyone okay and all the skeletons just obediently go back into their graves with this really yeah Uh, high stakes but so they go back to their graves and it's just so good let's listen to it and see if you recognize it from anywhere big fan of that I love it right okay what was that from so the question we're all asking ourselves where do we recognise that from and it took me ages guys it's Jonathan Creek it's the intro to Jonathan Creek Jonathan Creek was a murder mystery kind of series with Alan Davis Alan Davis who once bit off a tramp's ear (laughs) sorry what (laughs) British comedian Alan Davis yeah, once bit off Trump. What? Google it, Google it. Anyway, oh but, so God. it was this old school. And actually, I think there has been like Christmas special, but if you're English, you'll know what I mean. Right, you'll know what Jonathan right, Greig is. Yeah. It's a great show. Um, so that's where it's from, if you recognised it. Um, interestingly, though, this piece, if you can imagine it, was originally for voice and piano. Oh, so someone's just going, la, 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 la
And obviously, if you um, going on from what I said before, that that is meant to be what Death is playing on the on violin. The violins, that's Death himself. That playing is for Death's us. tune. Oh my god! Um, but what an absolute, what an absolute banger! And please, <laughs> please go and listen to the whole thing. And it's listen. not very long, isn't it? It's only yes, it's a few minutes long. It's great. Right. And um, listen up for everything I said, and you know the ob at the end, and the kind of sunrise and everything, and and the xylophone. The, xy- the xylophone ribs uh, are definitely more noticeable I, than Kelly thought. <laughs> They're, they're right up in there in the mix. I guarantee you'll really like it. Je me souviens bien, c'était le printemps de 2016. On a parlé ensemble et enfin, c'était le podcast classique. Next! It's Carnival of the Animals. Yeah. Or Le Carnival des Animaux, oh. if you're French. If you like, if you enjoy a French word or two. Uh, so our friend Camille wrote this in 1886 mm-hmm. while he was staying in a little tiny Austrian village. And basically... Not with his mum. Not with... Hopefully not with his mum. <laughs> get a little time away from her. He always intended this piece... Well, actually, it's a group of pieces. To be just solely fun times. He didn't he did not want them to be serious composer things no, at all. Sure. He he just made it for fun. In fact, so much so that he always requested for it not to be published until he was dead. Like he would go on oh, and on really? about it. he was like, I don't want this published till I'm in my grave. Please don't do it. Because I am a serious composer and I cannot have seriously, this. Seriously, yeah, yeah. Because he was like, I want people to take me seriously. That's really funny. And this is this too is much so fun. often played in children's classical I know, concerts now. Exactly, with things like Peter in the World yeah, yeah. and Young and Person's s- Guide to the <laughs> Orchestra. And so it's so many people's first exposure to I his know. work. But like, he'd, honestly, and I think he really liked it, but he just thought, no, people just won't take me seriously. Okay. And here's why. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, it's it's a suite of pieces. So it's 14 movements, each representing a different animal or indeed group of animals. Mm. Uh, so you've got your lions, you've got your roosters, wild asses, <laughs> story of my life, uh, tortoises, <laughs> the elephant, kangaroos, the aquarium, uh, characters with long ears, the cuckoo, the aviary, Pianists, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, uh, fossils and the swan. I really don't know why he put pianists in there. It was like he he ran out of ideas. It's really good. It is really it's good. It's really like, good it, because if you listen to it, it's like practicing scales. It's it's very. But good. so it's if it's the one I'm thinking of, isn't it? Two pianists playing at the same time. They do scales and then do really fast scales. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, oh, yeah. It's it so is good. great. It's good fun. It's good fun. Uh, wait, actually, no, 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 no. It's, are you thinking of Wild Asses? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. The pianist is the one where they just do the scales, but the Wild Asses is where they do That's the really fast one, because the pianist one is a slightly clumsy, but I think the, <laughs> yeah, the well, Wild Asses, is, it totally sounds right. like it's one piano. But it's two pianos playing at the same time. Ah, oh, yes, check yes. that one out. So he started working on this way back when he was teaching. Now, if you, you probably didn't hear it in the 60 seconds, but he did teach for a little while. Yeah. Um, And while he was in the school, he kind of wrote this for his he started writing it for his students, but uh-huh. then sort of left it. But then way later on, when he was supposed to be working on his third symphony, he was apparently, he wrote a letter to his friend saying, yeah, I know I'm meant to be working on my third symphony, but this is too much fun. I am genuinely <laughs> having too this. much fun. <laughs> so it was performed a couple of times in public, but Saint-Saëns was adamant that it should just not be published because it was too silly. But okay. he did end up publishing uh, The Swan, Le Signe, yeah. in 1887 because everyone really loved it. Yeah. And... You know the ballerina Anna Pavlova, the very famous old ballerina? For whom uh, Anna Pavlova was named. (laughs) Delicious. Um, (laughs) She made the swan famous. She danced to it all the time. She danced to it over 4,000 times. And people probably loved it. So he did publish that one. Okay. Anyway, but what we're going to listen to today is Aquarium. Oh, this is the darling. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Uh, No. (laughs) 
performance, which you might recognise from a whole bunch of things. Let's listen to it now and see if you do. I love that piece so much. Isn't that just dandy? Do you know what it's from? As in where it's been used in yeah. popular culture? Yeah. I don't actually Popular know. culture. As uh, the kids say, I believe. Well, I will tell you this for free. I recognised it instantly from Beauty and the Beast, the Is Disney it? film. When, really? when Bella's in the West Wing. Yeah, yeah. Ah, of course, I it's, should have known. I'll tell you that. Um, also, it's used in The Godfather Part 2, and it's used in Babe, the film Babe. Great film. Yes. Um, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Bit of Brad, Brad Pitt with the old aquarium. <laughs> okay, so used all over the place. Um, used all over the place, so you probably do recognise it, and that's what it is. It's Aquarium from The Carnival of the Animals Happy by Saint-Saëns. One, one thing that I really wanted to mention about this was that we didn't actually hear it in that excerpt because that's just the very beginning. But later on, there's some glockenspiel bits. A, a glockenspiel is just a tiny metal, metal xylophone that sounds yeah, really like yeah. ding, ding, ding. Now, oh my goodness, back in the day, the glockenspiel wasn't used. Instead, it was a glass harmonica or Ooh. an harmonica, like with your arm. What? <laughs> Let me tell you this. It was invented by Benjamin Franklin in 1761. As in the Benjamin Franklin? Yeah, the <laughs> the Benny Frank, right? So you know when people play on glasses, they like lick their fingers and, and then like play the on a glass. glass. So Benjamin Franklin like saw people performing like this and they were, and he was like, I must make it more efficient. So he made this, so it looks like a long horizontal bar on like, with, it looks like a like a rotisserie, like a chicken would be on with a, a thing long, that you turn. Right. And on the bar, the horizontal bar, are 37 glass bowls, right? Or like crystal bowls. Like attached to the bowl. A glass attached to a pole, right? Oh, attached to the pole. And so when you turn the pole, the glass, the glass goes around. And then oh. you have to pour water on it or like use water, like a bowl of water with your fingers. And it makes this eerie, crystally, like... <laughs> the, the only thing I can compare it to is like, you know, the chilled out version of the Harry Potter theme? The ding, 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 It kind of sounds like that. <laughs> right, okay. um, But, right, so... Definitely go on YouTube and look at these. But back in the day, first of all, when people played it, the people listening used to go crazy. Really? It had this like reputation for causing evil. Oh and and God. like making people go in like have hysteria. Okay, sorry, this is yet more fuel to my theory <laughs> that Camille Saint-Saëns is a sick <laughs> Right, exactly. And even more so because <laughs> because uh, Crystal used to be made using lead. <laughs> So he's poisoning his instrumentalists. So if you played it a lot, you'd hallucinate and faint and maybe die. So they kind of went out of fashion, as you might be able to imagine. But you can buy them today. They're about $40,000 each, apparently. Are they still full of lead? I hope not, but quite possibly. <laughs> um, but please go on YouTube and just type glass harmonica into YouTube. I promise that. We'll is post a, good, a video on Twitter. Good we'll 10 minutes we'll of fun. But yeah, so anyway, 
that was uh, Aquarium. The other really, really well-known piece from uh, the Carnival of the Animals is the swan that I mentioned earlier. Mm. And you'll definitely recognise that one. It's the one that goes... beautiful cello loads of cellists love it it's really gorgeous you should definitely listen to that i'll put it on my spotify playlist and otherwise if you want to delve a bit more into Sansons, check out he wrote some lovely concertos he wrote some lovely symphonies and if you want to check out his opera i mentioned earlier he tried to write a lot of operas really and didn't really no take one off. liked them <laughs> also because back in the day everyone was like you're a pianist and an organist like we're not interested he's also written some uh, really nice solo violin stuff there's a piece called introduction and rondo capriccioso Ooh, that's yes. sort of like a standard for lots of yeah violinists. that's lovely it's yeah really nice. check it out and as we say we'll put everything on the spotify playlist but there we are Sansons done Right, next up, it's me with your boy, Eric Sutty. Your boy, Eric. Your boy, Eric. I'm very excited. So we've chosen to link him together with Camille Saint-Saëns. Mm. Uh, they were both running around Paris at the same time. Yeah, they had gallivanting. <laughs> they had occasional uh, run-ins with one another. Mm. Not really fans of one another, I think. Well, yeah, because Sa- uh, Saint-Saëns um, didn't like the up-and-comers. He was not a fan. He thought they were all crazy, especially people like <laughs> Debussy and Stravinsky thought they were literally mental. Absolutely, mm. and um, I was going to mention in my 60-second bio, but mm. I won't anymore, uh, oh. that... <laughs> That Satie applied for membership of the Académie Française, which is sort of the academy with all the French oh. bigwigs and clever people. He applied for them two times. And Sanson was the head of it. Sanson yeah, was the president. Right. I didn't mention that, but um, he was. Just because Satie thought was like, yeah, I should be part of this. I'm pretty mm, important. Mm, 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 and Sanson was like, no. No, you're not. <laughs> do you want? Anyway. Yeah. It is now time for me to do the thing that is... The 60 Second Show. You know it. Let's do it. Right. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Are you steady-ish? More or less. Three, two, one, go. Eric Satie, born 1866, died in 1925. He was born in Normandy, moved to Paris at the age of four, uh, back to Normandy after his mother died two years later. Uh, his grandparents died when he was 12, so moved back to Paris again with his dad and his brother. Uh, age 13, uh, went to the Paris Conservatoire, called Untalented and Worthless by his piano teachers. Uh, he left, came back age 19, but still sort of flopped. Age 21, moved to Montmartre in Paris, started composing Gymnopédie and others. Uh, friends with poets and composers like Debussy. He began a short relationship with the artist Suzanne Valadon. He proposed after their first night together, and he was obsessed what? with her. She moved away after six months. He stayed single for the rest of his life. Uh, 1896 uh, he slightly runs out of money moves to a suburb of Paris called Arcueil uh, he makes money as a cabaret pianist he agreed to hate all of his cabaret compositions 1905 does more studying everyone's like what the f- you're already a respected composer uh, he becomes a very successful piano composer after this pals with people like Ravel Picasso Jean Cocteau uh, he was big in the Did Dada movement uh, Michel Duchamp Stravinsky uh, he gets a following of young musicians called Ten. the Ecole d'Arcueil named after the suburb um, he was a really heavy drinker he died 1925 Five. from cirrhosis of the liver oh wow 58 seconds. Nailed it. What a guy. What a life, What right? a man. What a man. What Why a man. did he propose to someone after one night? Talk um, me through it. What was he thinking? Can so, you say clingy? <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, she was this artist, Suzanne Valadon, and after their first night together, he was so besotted with her that he proposed immediately. I mean... She was like, no. Maybe a kiss on the first date, if you're lucky, but like a life together, I just yeah, don't no. know. And so she, I'm not sure if it's by chance or on purpose, moved into the same building as he did. So they had this sort of oh, whirlwind six months together. Oh, God, yeah. And I'll go on to talk a bit later about how he wrote a, a piece for her. But he was 
obsessed with her. Oh my god. And she, after like six months, moved away and I think was never quite as keen on it as he was. He was a bit was. too full on. Uh, oh no. And double text. he stayed... <laughs> yeah, he double texted her. <laughs> he stayed single for the rest of his life after that. Shit, so she was like the one. She was the one. She broke his little art. His tiny wee His tiny French girl. art. Oh dear. Yeah. Anyway, so there's some other cool things around him. So he was friends with all of the artistic movers and shakers. Now, That's do you it. remember when we were talking about Les Six? Yes, I do. Who are this uh, collection, I guess, mm. of six French composers who are all in Paris at the same time. Mm-hmm. He actually was in a group of five with four of Les Six called Les Nouveaux Jeunes. <laughs> that sounds the, confusing. Yeah, yeah. So the, the new young ones. Yeah. Then he... Uh, left them he parted ways with the, the four of them in 1918 okay. and then the final two who if memory serves were Milo and Poulenc okay. they then oh, joined yeah, yeah. and then it became Les Six so he was originally in the group <gasps> but see. left before they became famous if you get me oh no okay yeah, yeah. And another funny habit that he had was he would just sort of write on all of his compositions just like notes and thoughts mm. and this habit of his became so well established that people started to like read out the things as part of the performance that he wrote. What? Um, and in a while, he like he got so fed up with this, so he wrote, "To whom it may concern, I forbid anyone to read the text aloud during the musical performance. Ignorance of my instructions will incur my righteous indignation against the presumptuous culprit." No exception will be allowed. Was it because he drew little penises? Is that why he didn't <laughs> want people to? Li- I don't understand how people can see what he's written. Well, he'd just, like, doodle on the manuscript and would just, like, write thoughts and here's what you should do. So you mean, so if a pianist was playing from his original manuscript... They would read out the things he read while they were playing. That's really weird. I'm not surprised he told them not to do it. Well, he said it sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek because it was all stuff that was relevant to the piece, but in a bit of a weird way. He was a weird dude. Strange. Uh, anyway, so he lived in this suburb called Arcueil and lived there for years and years, about 27 years. And so, as I said, he was single... For the whole rest of his life. Jeez Louise. And so no one ever visited him in this apartment. And then after his death, people went in to like tidy up all his possessions and stuff. The place was a tip beyond tip. Disgusting. There were two pianos stacked on top of each other. The bottom piano was for playing, the top one was for storage. (laughs) And it was so messy that they found pieces that he thought he'd lost on a bus. So he wrote this piece called Jack in a Box that he thought he'd left on a bus Mm. years previous. But they just found it in just in one of his pianos. Probably, yeah. Oh my god. Uh, So yeah, living uh, in a little bit of squalor there. Well, not squalor. He was like, (laughs) he's doing fine. Just never tidied up, really. God. Now, moving on to the first piece of his that we're going to talk about, Mm. uh, written 1888, and it's called Gymnopédie numéro Uh, un. Yes. Do you know it? Who doesn't know it? In fact, I reckon most of our listeners will know this. I reckon so. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll play in a second, mm. but not before. Okay. i tell you all about it. This was, <laughs> he wrote six of them in total in two threes. So this is the first one. So one, two, three, four, five, six were two separate collections. Count. That's great. Yeah, thanks, mate. I can count. But there were separate collections <laughs> and it's important to know these things. Anyway, they're all in 3-4, so three beats to a bar. They're very atmospheric. There's these sort of beautiful, yes, mild very, distance to them. very... Yeah, and it makes them feel sort of like wistful and yeah, melancholy. Like you're and, on a cloud, oh, but a sad beautiful. one. <laughs> yeah. A really sad cloud. And yeah, these much like uh, Saint-Saëns' pieces are used all over the shop in yeah. films and video games. Oh, everyone and, and his dog. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's have a listen. Thank you. 
Oh, it's nice, isn't it? What an absolute classique. Absolute banger. I must say, though, to let the listeners in on the secrets and lies of that classical <laughs> podcast, so we often have to look for a version of a piece that we like, don't yeah. we? Took us ages to find this that one. This one was really hard. You know, it's like everyone has their own tastes in classical music. Yeah. You know, you like things faster or slower. This was such a nightmare. So the, the markings on it is long et douloureux, which is sort of slow and sad, basically. Yeah. But some people are really taking Bloody the mickey. Bloody slut taking the piss they are. <laughs> anyway, so find a version that you like. We've chosen one that we did, but, you know, go out there and <laughs> explore. Anyway, so exactly what Sati means by this word, uh, gymnopédie, that he used to describe these pieces, right. uh, isn't totally clear. So some people felt like it was a neologism that he created, but actually it was a word that had been around for ages. So there's some suggestions that maybe it's a dance, that there's references to antiquity, because it's sort of like a Greek word. Okay. In um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, was mm-hmm. a dictionary writer, he wrote a 1775 musical dictionary, and in there it's an air or chant to which young female Spartans danced naked. Okay! Oh, I mean, he was a lonely man. <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised he was imagining that. It could be that, but yeah, anyway, it was never totally clear exactly what he was going for, but mm. he is quite happy in general for his work to exist in just as music, basically. Great. It doesn't necessarily need to mean anything or relate to anything. Fine, okay. Uh, and in fact, he would later, as I mentioned in the, the biography, he would later go on to be an influential voice in the Dada movement. So what's uh, the Dada movement? This was a sort of pan-European artistic movement okay. uh, that did have a lot of its roots in France, though, mm-hmm. uh, that rejects the logic and the reason of modern capitalist society instead expressing ideas of sort of nonsense and irrationality as a critique of this sort of bourgeois sensibility. So you get poets who would write nonsense poetry. Right. Uh, you would get uh, artists um, like Marcel Duchamp, who I mentioned in the biog, who was friends with Satie. So Marcel Duchamp is the one who, do you know the urinal that he put on his side and said, this is art? Oh my God. Yes, I do. That one, yeah. Yes. Okay, basically, they're just taking the piss. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's a legit, <laughs> in my opinion, it's a legitimate critique. <laughs> and Agreed, disagree. Yeah, anyway, go on. Dada. Mm. That's, he was part of that. So he was very happy for work to be divorced from context, basically. Okay. And I will, in fact, go on to chat about that a little bit later. Looking forward to it. That classical podcast. So the next piece we're going to talk about is the Gnossienne numéro 1, Crikey. written in 1890. So this, these both figure amongst his earlier work. So he was primarily a piano composer. He did write mm-hmm. other stuff for orchestra, but primarily we know him now as a piano writer. Cool. So this was among his early piano stuff. And it's kind of experimental. So at this point, he was writing stuff without bar lines. So for those of you listening who <laughs> do read music, you're used to seeing a score huh. split up into bars. Huh. But for this, he just wanted it to be a bit freer, so he didn't split the music into bars and just let it I mean, flow. I guess... I guess it- it's okay if you do that if you know what the time signature is. You can probably well, sure he gave like tempo markings yeah, and everything. Yeah, bit... but... yeah, cool. <laughs> I don't like it. It's strange. <laughs> uh, what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in and mm. listen to this one. Let's do it.
Yes. 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 So you might recognise that from a bunch of films. Chocolat. Chocolat. Yeah, it's the bit where uh, it's the sexy bit. <gasps> yeah, yeah, where it's <laughs> talking about um, the parents of the person in sexy times. Yeah. It's a bit of a sexy piece, though. It's a bit seductive. <laughs> Am I be. wrong? <laughs> Am I wrong? Tweet I don't know. Us. Tweet us, let us know, yeah. <laughs> anyway... So I wanted to take this as a bit of a springboard to talk about how experimental Satie actually was as a composer. Right. So he really played around with all sorts of cool ideas and forms and was, through his association with Dada, one of the first more sort of experimental abstract composers that right. uh, would become more influential throughout the 20th century. So the first piece, uh, he wrote a song that is only four bars long. God's sake. Called Bonjour Biki Bonjour. Uh, now, Biki was his pet name for Suzanne Valadon, the artist with uh, whom he had the, the, the first date. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, as I mentioned, this was the only romantic relationship he ever had. <laughs> and I read that there was apparently no evidence that Valadon was ever actually aware of this gift. And at that stage in their six month long uh, relationship, he was having trouble sorting out dates with her, even though they lived in the same building. Anyway, check that out. It's really weird. So, it's, it's a love song. <laughs> But it takes, like, less than 30 seconds to perform, and it sounds really weird and dissonant. Super weird. Oh, my gosh. Other things that he did that were super innovative include what he called furniture music. Okay. So he wrote, for example, one piece called Tapisserie en fer forgé, um, which is a tapestry out of forged iron, basically, as in, like, forged right. by yeah. a blacksmith. Got you. Uh, Subtitled, it's the arrival of guests to be played in a vestibule. Okay. So this is background music, basically. It's the first example we have of music being produced totally out of context, mm-hmm. not as the focus of attention, right. but purely just as a backdrop. Uh, and so what it is, is the precursor to modern ambient music. What about Tuffle music? No. Get ta- in the bin! We talked about Tuffle music hundreds of years before! No, but so Tafel Musik, uh, who was who wrote that again? Teleman. That Teleman. And Bach. Yeah, no, but so the idea of having music to accompany like dinner and stuff yeah. wasn't new. Right. But it could have been performed separately. This, that piece I just spoke about, Tapisserie en Fer Forgé, right. is eight bars that's just repeated indefinitely. So it wasn't even meant to be performed? No, it, really it, was, was it was meant to be performed, but only in the, in the circumstance of being in the background. Okay, I'll allow it. Fine, continue. So this, um, my housemate, hi if you're listening, mate, uh, he is super into ambient music, right, which yeah. I am not. Right, yeah, yeah. And this is really the precursor to that, basically, which is... This is the first, like, drone in the background. Well, sort of. It just, like, it wasn't even drone, it just, it's... Okay. There's musical interest to it, but it just repeats and repeats it and repeats It was the first chill-out comp- Yes, exactly that. And so John Cage, the American composer, best known for Fornitz 33. We should cover him in an episode one time. Let us know if you'd like us to talk about John Cage. Uh, He picked this up and really influenced a lot of his work in creating experimental sort of soundscapes beyond that. Mm. And so John Cage actually performed a piece of Satie's called Vexation. (laughs) So there's a quote that he wrote at the top of this piece that says... In order to play the theme 840 times in succession, it would be advisable to prepare oneself beforehand and in the deepest silence by serious immobilities. So he he's wow. not he's not telling you to play it 840 times, <laughs> but he's not not telling you to play it 840 <laughs> times in a row. So John Cage took this upon himself in 1963 to say, yeah, you know what? I will play this piece 840 <laughs> times in a row. And so this performance, apparently it lasted way longer than he thought it would. It lasted 18 hours. 
the shit. And the way to view this concert was you paid $5 and you'd get a nickel returned back. (laughs) You'd get a nickel back for every 20 minutes that you stayed watching. That's not how concerts work. Well, because he was like, oh, the more art you consume, the cheaper it should be, is what he said. Uh, And so there was one person that stayed for the whole thing, but otherwise people just wandered in and out. And apparently at the end of the 18-hour performance of the same piece, 840 times. He did a uh, massive pee. Someone, no, it wasn't just him. They had like pianists coming in on shifts doing stuff. Got it. And apparently at the end, someone shouted encore. (laughs) What a hilarious Hilarious joke. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so that's just to give you a bit of an example of how Satie, we know him from these famous pieces that go into films, but actually he was a really, really creative, innovative composer mm. that really laid the groundwork for a lot of the, the avant-garde stuff sure. that came throughout the 20th and now in the 21st century. Mm. So a lot more depth to him. Seems so. Is there anything else we should listen to if we want to check him out? Yeah, so I'd listen to all the rest of the Gymnopédie and the Gnossienne. Yes. Yes. Just beautiful, beautiful piano music. Mm. That is actually one that you can just listen to while you're or doing homework or whatever. Yeah, and there are a bunch of his just like compilation um, Satie piano albums, aren't there? You can just go and listen through those there, handy. I would absolutely recommend that. And also, so I mentioned in the biog that briefly he, while he was a bit short on cash, worked as a cabaret pianist and wrote pieces for that. He didn't really like the music he wrote then. He thought it was all a bit sort of simple and not not musically worthwhile. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there's one song from that that I really, really like called Je Te Veux. It just means I want to. And it's just really really beautiful it's about three and a half minutes long for soprano and piano hmm. just beautiful beautiful music amazing Would really recommend listening oh to i'll that. check that one out i don't know that one you should anyway so that's eric satie done brilliant so that was our episode on eric satie and camille Saint-Saëns. now you know yeah, how to was. pronounce both of those names <laughs> uh if you enjoyed it then why not tell us on all of our social media accounts. Chris, go Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. Right, so Twitter, find us on there. We're at That Classical. We're on Instagram, at That Classical Insta. Yeah, We're on it. Facebook, That Classical Podcast. Mm-hmm. You can email us, thatclassicalemail at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, we've got a Spotify playlist. We Just do. type That Classical Podcast in Spotify and you can find all of the pieces we talk about. You can. If all that was a bit overwhelming for you, just go to www.thatclassicalpodcast.com to find all of the information, as well as a handy glossary of musical yes, terms. indeed. All in one beautifully handy place. Available on the World Wide Web. Um, and <laughs> most importantly, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please uh, head over to iTunes and leave us a, a five-star review. We'd love to hear from you guys. Mm. We really appreciate it when we do. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.